Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 378, and I had a conversation with Mike Farrell. Mike is a producer, director, and actor, best known for his role as BJ Honeycutt on the beloved and extraordinary show MASH, and as Dr. James Hansen on Providence, among many, many other roles and programs. He's also the president of the board of Death Penalty Focus, which is committed to the abolition of the death penalty. He's a human rights and refugee activist, and he's goodwill ambassador for the UN High Commission for Refugees. He's also an author. I had such a good time talking with Mike. He's an extraordinary human being and just really fascinating to talk with. Um, I, it was a delightful conversation. I'm really excited for you to hear this one. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, wherever you get your music. And look for my albums all over the place. All I ever wanted was everything, how to say goodbye, surfacing to breathe. They're all out there. Check out my relationships and sex show with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman on YouTube under Are We There Yet? podcast show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening. Be well, be love, be kind, and here we go. Mike Farrell, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. And shout out to Bob Zoff for connecting us. Yes, yes, that was nice of Bob. Yeah, he's been on the show and he has introduced me to a lot of really wonderful folks. Uh, and, uh, so I was really pleased when he connected us. Thank you. Me too. Yeah. He's uh, Bob's quite terrific and he's really does a lot of good for a lot of really, really important people. That's which is uh, Gary. Gary Tyler was our com- our common link, and uh, I'm sure you've spoken to Gary. So, if you- yeah, he was on the show. What an extraordinary story! And isn't it though? I mean, yeah. this, he's he's the example for me of what's possible and what's wrong with this bloody system. Absolutely. Uh, but Absolutely. what you know, what humans are capable of enduring and and uh, surviving. Mm-hmm. And coming yeah. through, coming through whole, because there's so many who are damaged, incredibly damaged. I and mean, Gary can't have, can't have avoided damage, but but somehow he's uh, I don't know. There, there's a quality to him that is just a, quite extraordinary. I think it's the artist. It's well, the that's, you know, and and I think he's he's right. He he um, he recognizes that, and he uses that, and it helps him. This is butterfly concept, you know. I've been in the cocoon for a long time. <laughs> uh, is is really wonderful. But even before I knew, I didn't have any idea about his artistic abilities when I first met him, and it was just something deeply sweet about him that I that I responded to. And uh, and then the work, of course, he got involved with immediately, helping young people, was right up right up my alley. So I was I was. Yeah. He has an innate kindness, and the thing that strikes me the most about, and we're going to get into all of this, uh, uh, 
the death penalty and the reform of death penalty and mm. uh, and all of that but it's what an incredible tragedy any time a life is taken a tragedy but for somebody that is innocent and was innocent and was able to maintain not only his dignity but mm. a sense of purpose throughout his entire incarceration and imagine if that light had been cut out yeah yeah, yeah. what what a what a what a hole in society that would have left and uh, well yeah 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 we're in agreement there well let's get into you mike okay. uh, tell me where did you grow up what was uh, childhood how how were you shaped in the beginning I was born in Minnesota, but my folks moved here to Los Angeles when I was quite young, too, actually. And um, I was raised here in West Hollywood, California. Before it became a city, it was a, uh, they, they called it, I guess, a county, unincorporated county strip. And, I, you know, the more I think about it, the more I'm grateful for how lucky I was to have come up in this family, you know, I, I don't know if any family is perfect, but my dad was a hard-drinking, tough-talking, and tough-acting Irish guy, kind of John Wayne in in, in capital letters. And my mom was a, a housewife doing her duty and, and did it extraordinarily. I mean, she raised us, they raised us, but he was kind of the ruler and she was the hands-on person and i have uh, had older an older sister who passed a few years ago and have a younger brother and younger sister who was the baby of the family and we you know grew up in public schools and in, in, in a neighborhood where there were a lot of kids and we <laughs> flowered i suppose is a word i'm not sure it's the word but uh, we developed and and you develop with all those um all those lessons i was a my my folks were very strict catholics and i was raised in a catholic church and i was told what you should and you know thou shalt not do a lot of things and feel a lot of things and say a lot of things and so there was a kind of constraint the church imposed constant i i think horrifically kind of uh, crippling sanctions but my dad is he was um he was a very strong and tough man he wasn't abusive in the sense of beating us up although he used his hands and a dog's leash whenever he felt that it was necessary to punish but there was always a sense of um impending doom <laughs> <laughs> impending doom overstates it a bit but there was always a sense of okay if I step out of line here uh, you know this is not going to be good so I grew up with that and my younger brother was a, a, a more of a free spirit than I was and our baby sister was um the apple of my dad's eye because we were all light-haired blue-eyed until she came along he was had dark hair and and brown eyes and she was his coloring, so she was sort of his favorite. Although she doesn't remember, it's really sad, she doesn't remember much of that because he died when she was quite young, mm -hmm. when we were all quite young. 
he had a heart attack and died when I was 17 and my brother was 15, I guess. And Kathy was probably nine. Then it was sort of kind of find your way, you know. And for me, uh, being a man was urgently important and necessary. And one way, I was 17, I was just about to graduate from high school. And a buddy of mine and I had played the game of how tough were you and how tough are you going to be and what would you have to do? And the draft was staring me in the face. And I so I joined the Marines, showed out, prove how tough I am. And uh, and and served uh, my time not happily. It was, the Marines was an awful experience, but you know it was a lot like my dad. <laughs> it was very strict. It was very demanding. It expected you to do absolutely what you were told and do the best you could. And the best you could probably wasn't good enough, so you had to do the best you could again. <laughs> so it, it 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 laid a lot of um, expectations on, and I was pretty young, pretty naive, nineteen or twenty, I guess, when I got out, and uh, and I was a grad, you know, I was a, a Marine veteran, God, <laughs> and the kids I knew were had gone to college, many of them. So I got a job, and I tried to figure out what I wanted to be in life. And I'd always dreamed. I've sussed it out to the degree that my, my sister, my older sister, Sally, used to, uh, she, she was, uh, I guess, five or six years older than I was. And she um bring home movie magazines. And the movie magazines, you know, aside from looking at pictures of women, I, I was able to see that uh, the, that young people could were in that business were got famous, and with fame, of course, one understands comes love and attention and respect and all the things that you want. And so I decided, you know, God, wouldn't that be great to be an actor? And of course, you know, if I'd ever said that to my dad, he <laughs> he had a habit of sarcastic comments, and he would have found a a, a perfect one to nail me with. <clears throat> but he was gone. So I kind of doped around. I got a job driving a truck, and I did various things, but. Kept sort of wondering and dreaming and hoping that somehow magically I was going to be able to be an actor. I met a guy, uh, gay people in West Hollywood, even then there were a lot of gay people. And um, it, it became a joke um, going to school, going to high school. I never took a bus. I just stuck out my thumb and some almost invariably some gay guy would pick me up and give me a ride and where are you going? And I'm going to school and okay. And would you like to? And I said, no, thanks. And, and he'd drop me off, you know, no harm, no foul. I just got a free ride. But this, uh, I was, I was standing on the corner looking for the, waiting for the, literally waiting for a bus after I finished work one day. And this man pulled his car, his Cadillac up and 
got out of it and made a kind of silly a pretense about having to clean some, something off his shoe and and then said uh you're waiting for a bus i said yeah and he said where are you going and i said down in west hollywood and he said you want to ride and i said sure and uh, we drove uh along in his cadillac and he uh he gave me his card and he said um the conversation came up about being an actor you're a good-looking young man sort of thing i suppose i don't remember the conversation but he gave me his card and it turned out he was an agent i thought oh cool i can call this agent and you know here's my the door is opening for me to get into the business when i got home i talked about it my older sister laughed and she said that guy is infamous he's a homosexual who's bring you know brings all these young boys young guys into his into his uh, sort of nest and uh, <laughs> and watch yourself and i said yeah i take care of myself you know no worries so i called him and i guess i don't remember how, where we met or whatever but at any rate he once he said i have uh, an interview for you for a movie I said, really? And he said, yeah. So I thought, well, shit, you know, here it goes. It's beginning. And um, I went on this interview and I met a man who I really, I, I think, and I don't know for sure that it was Hal Wallace, who was a famous motion picture producer. I'm not sure it was him, but it was a movie, uh, war movie. I was an ex-Marine, blah, blah, blah. And he said, Henry sent you, Henry Wilson was this man's, the agent's name. And he said, Henry sent you. And I said, yeah. And he said, are you one of his uh, boys? And I said, what do you mean? You know, what what Henry's, Henry's price for having a career is what it is. And I said, no, no, not. Uh, and he said, well, let me tell you that every interview you go on, that Henry sends you on, people are going to assume that that's the case. I mean, he was really terrific. He was quite straightforward and just warned me. I mean, he saw the innocence, I guess, and he saw the, the hope and the dreams and the, and the, and the kind of uh, almost childish um, approach I was taking to this whole thing. And I said, thank you very much. And um left and i went back to henry and i said you uh here's what he said and he said well that's essentially right he said everywhere you go in this business you're going to either you're going to have to be willing to compromise one way or another um if you want to make uh make a name for yourself and i said um no Thank you. Goodbye. And it, it was like, it was really an important lesson for me, I think. One that I had the courage to say no, but also because uh, it, I was beginning, seems funny to say it when I was beginning, I was 20, 21 by that time to form a sense of uh, personal ethics 
there were rights and there were wrongs and not just what my dad and mom said not what just what the church said but there were things that were right and there were things that were wrong and i wanted to be real clear about what i was doing and who i presented myself as anyway long story short but um so then i just kind of kept on sort of wishing and hoping one of the guys i joined the marines with was working in a gas station on uh, sunset boulevard on the sunset strip uh, where we you know that was a big deal for us we'd go up and down the strip and drive up and down and look at the girls <laughs> honk the horn but he but he was working one night and a guy a new guy had come in he was um his name was bud boyle never forget him bud was from prince edward island in canada and he had come all the way out to the west coast because he wanted to be an actor and he said uh mike i understand you you're interested in being an actor and i said uh yeah and he said what are you doing about it and i said what do you mean <laughs> he said well i'm part of an actor's workshop where we go and we work out with somebody who works you know we work scenes and we learn about characters and we he said uh i was just scared shitless of the idea <laughs> but he said uh you know if you're really serious about being an actor you might want to consider something like that and so i went and joined went sat in the back row but joined his uh his actors group workshop and you know one thing leads to another and you meet a lot of people and you learn you learn what it's like to stand on stage and you know, what it's like to do a scene and what how you begin to i guess develop your craft that led to a play and that led to an agent a legitimate agent who could get me some uh, interviews at least and then i got a few small parts and then you know one thing led to another and i developed a career which was ultimately incredibly satisfying and really really wonderful uh, really a, i consider myself the luckiest actor in the world for having been part of the television show mash because it it spoke to all those values i was talking about and it spoke to them in a very dramatic and very uh, impressive way and you know there were things that happened along the way but i've just been very lucky were yeah. your family members supportive as you were going through that process or did they think what are you going to do with your life you can't be an actor that's insane well that was that was that would have been my dad's attitude my mom was very sweet she was um of this you'll learn school you know <laughs> you're going to get your you're going to get your nose broken or you're going to get your head bumped or you're going to do whatever and you, you, but you'll learn and uh, and i did um my sister my older sister was pretty cynical at first and then she was just proud as hell of me because i made some progress a little time little at a time so the family was family was at best neutral and i mean at worst neutral and at best supportive uh, during that process were you talking to your dad along the way saying you know if you were here i'm sure you would think i was crazy but look at me go i i didn't have those kinds of conversations but i thought about him a lot i still think about him a lot uh, i'm sorry that he didn't last 
until I could stand up to him, mm. uh, declare myself, you know, as an individual, not a not a kid that he could push around. But you know, and 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 I also. When I raised my kids, I made sure that they knew that I loved them and that they uh, were welcome as and a treasured part of my life. Stuff he, the family that he created was we never we didn't hug, we didn't talk, we didn't we didn't do you know the sort of things that. Um, that I think are essential in a relationship. But it took me a long time and a lot of therapy and a lot of growing up and a lot of broken bones to <laughs> to uh, to come to that place. Oh, love the therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about MASH. That was an extraordinarily successful show. Yes, it was. And I think what strikes me I had Ken Levine on the show. Oh, funny. did you? Yeah. 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 Very funny. Very, very wonderful experience to talk with him. The thing that really strikes me about MASH, besides the fact that it went on longer than the war it was portraying, uh, is that it had such a deep, to me, sense of uh, morality and understanding of the complication of the human condition, that it wasn't a black and white conversation. That's it was right. so nuanced. Absolutely so, absolutely so, and uh, and it was it was it was that way by um, uh, through the direction of uh, Larry Gelbart and and Gene Reynolds, particularly, who created the show, and Alan, who they Alan Alda, who they hired. Alan wanted. Alan is one of the uh, one of the smartest and one of the most principled people I've ever I've ever known. He's um, incredibly talented, but extraordinarily generous in doing what he did for me. For example, accepting me and making me an equal, um, you know, almost equal, whatever. But it was, you know, there was no question about who the star of the show was. Um, and I certainly had no quarrel with who the star of the show was. But the he and I, I I've told this story a number of times. I tend to get involved in political and social issues and things. I was in Southeast Asia, I guess. Anyway, somewhere in a very impoverished part of the world and came back because the response I got from the people there who knew the show, one, the fact that they knew the show, and second, what the show meant to them. I came back and Alan and I sat together. We, we became very close friends. And uh, I, I, I've forgotten, it was maybe the second or third year I was on the show beginning of the season we'd you know sit around and talk and kind of say hi and what you've been doing lately and i said to alan are you are you hearing the same thing i'm hearing out there and he said yeah i am and i said this show 
really means something to people, not only in this country, but around the world. And it means what you were just talking about. It means something about the human value and about peace and about morality. And I mean, just the things that I think were at the core of what Larry and Jean set up, but it needed it needed that uh, it needed reassurance uh, by the part on the parts of other people. You know, you've got a television network that all they care about is ratings. They don't give a damn what you do or say, except they don't want you to swear. <laughs> uh, they used to not want you to swear. Now they don't mind. Anyway, uh, he so he and I sort of talked about it for quite a while, and then we got the cast together and we said, "Look." It's up to us to make sure that this show continues to live up to what the audience out there believes it means and um, and hold high that that premise that people matter, that blood's not spilled without cost, that that human beings are on both sides of any any disagreement and and right or wrong is sometimes hard to define but you have to do what you think is is the best you can do and and to a, their credit everybody everybody got it under understood agreed and so i think the last four or five years of the show four years of the show maybe were partly that i was in it but were more um, focused than the first few years, and it was intentional. It, and and the writers got it. We did stuff, you know, talking about uh, the the human foibles, but but did it in a way that I I can't tell you. I get mail every day, every day from people still fifty years later talking about the. The, the show and what it means to them and continues to mean to them. And That's great. Yeah, it is. It's really remarkable. When you were reading for the part, yeah. the cut, did you, were you going in with that? I don't know how to put that exactly that, that weight or had you not quite wrapped your head around that yet? I mean, because it was already a hit show. It was a hit show. You're right. No, I. It's. it's I'll, I'll tell you a story. I. Um. I was. By that time, I was um, doing well in the industry. I had done two years on a soap. I had done uh, one season on a main uh, series that was prime time, and I had done two actually series uh, with really wonderful actors broderick crawford was the star of one of them and uh, anthony quinn great anthony quinn was the star of another one and i got to work with some really wonderful talented people and then when the quinn series failed in order to do the quinn series it was required they required that i sign a contract with universal studio and I thought, mm, I'm not sure I want to do that, but I I wanted to work with Quinn. So I said, okay. And then when the show ended, as I knew it would, he was much too big, much too powerful for television. 
I thought, well, maybe they'll let me out of the contract. And of course, they didn't. They wanted me to do a guest, you know, guest stars in all the series that they did and some of the really dopey. So I, I, I kind of became Peck's bad boy on the set, on the, on the lot. I would say, no, I don't want to do that one. And they'd say, you don't have the right to, <laughs> to say no. And I said, yeah, they do. <laughs> And they'd say, well, that means you're on suspension. Your contract is, we're not going to pay you for that week or those two weeks or whatever it is. I said, okay. So we came to this agreement that I was, <laughs> but, but they did, they, they, they really did give me some really good opportunities to, to do shows. One, I, I, I was a friend of mine called me and he said, let's have dinner. And I said, great. I'd love to see you. And, Went to his place and I knocked on the door and he he came to the door and he I said let's go and he said oh, wait a minute I we can't I can't leave yet my favorite show is on and I said what's that and we went in and it was Mash and I had I'd never seen the show I was entranced I they there was there was a scene I'll never forget with Gary Berghoff Radar nineteen year old you know kid off the farm and. Iowa or wherever, with essentially bombs bursting and blood spurting and shit going on. And he was sort of trying to keep it all together. And I thought, what a magnificent, what a magnificent show. How frigging lucky are those people to be doing that show? And I just fell in love. And um and then I went back to to work. You know, I my I was doing this or that. And then I got a, 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 a call from a producer who said, "I would like you to star in my new series." And I said, "Well, can I read the script?" And he said, "Sure." So he sent me the script, and it was just a silly show, just one of those uh, three jokes to a page kind of thing, just like manufactured humor. I said, "Thanks, but no thanks." And he said, you're, you're turning down the lead in a television series? <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, I guess I am. And he said, why? And I didn't want to say, well, your show is stupid. <laughs> so I said, uh, well, it's not MASH. And he looked at me and I, I said, what I mean is MASH is about something and i want to do a show that's about something you know not just a show that does jokes so he you know he found somebody else i'm sure although i don't think show ever got on the air but i'll never forget that because a year later my agent got a call said wayne rogers is thinking about leaving the cast of mash we'd like to know if mike farrell would be interested in coming over and having a conversation with us we don't know that Wayne is going to leave. We're still trying to work out his con contract. But in, in the event he does, we have to have somebody to replace him. And we're going to see a bunch of actors, and we'd like to see Mike Farrell. So he said, can you do that? Can you come over there and meet them? I said, shit, can I? The question is, can I? I'm under contract here at Universal. And he said, well, that's not going to hurt to go and have a meeting. And I said, okay. And I went in and met with Larry uh, Gelbart and Gene Reynolds and uh, and I think Bert Metcalf at that point. Bert, I had known Bert slightly. He was a casting director at Universal. 
and he was now the associate producer of MASH. And at any rate, we had this conversation where I <laughs> I felt like I stumbled and mumbled and grumbled and farted through the entire thing. I thought I was it was the worst interview I'd ever done. And I finally apologized. I said, I, listen, I, I'm sorry. I said, I, I hope you know I'm a professional and I've done a lot of good work and I've been involved in things. But I am so in love with this show. The idea of meeting you guys with the possibility of being a part of it has me in a panic. And they were wonderful. They were just, just terrific. And they said, um, any, would you have any concerns about being a part of being, doing this, stepping in where uh, Trapper John had trod? And I said, my one concern is that I, I wouldn't uh, be interested in becoming Trapper John. I think that'd be a big mistake. Um, actor replacing, you know, we're on another. I said, they said, no, we quite agree with you. Um, they said, um, you know, it's military. People transferred away, people get shifted, people die, people whatever. So um, uh, what we have in mind is a, a a fellow who medical doctor who's married and has a baby at home and is not going to be a womanizer like Hawkeye and and Trapper had been have been. How would you feel about that? <laughs> I said, you asked me how I would feel about uh, modeling fidelity on national television. <laughs> I wouldn't mind that at all. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I don't know how many actors they met. I know I got a call some days later to come in and, and they asked if I would be willing to do a screen test. And they said, it's not about whether you can act, it's about a test with Alan to see kind of how you're, how you two play together. And I said, absolutely. And went in and did it and thought I did a terrible job and went home thinking, it's a comedy for Christ's sakes. Why couldn't you have found a way to be funny? <laughs> but, but fortunately, I got a call saying, you're the guy. And, uh, well, there's such a dryness to him and such a grounding to that character that if you had gone in blazing, com you know, comic guns, it wouldn't have worked. No, 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 of course it wouldn't. And I, but I was just, that was part of my second guessing myself. Sure, of course, yeah. Shit, you fool. But, oh my gosh. Yeah. So it was great. I mean, it was, uh, and it turned into I mean, just, a, just a wonderful goddamn experience. Helen called me that night. And he said, are you free to have dinner? I'd like to have dinner with you. And I said, absolutely. <laughs> and we sat and talked and talked for hours about what his hopes and dreams were for the show and how much he cared about it and how important it was that we stay, you know, the same kind of stuff we talked about later when, uh, when I came back from Southeast Asia. And it was such, it was such a wonderful thing for him to do, first of all. And second, it was it was really a kind of a leg up for me. I was suddenly coming into this uh, to this group that was 
reputed in the industry to be a very close family, and I'm taking the place of one of their, one of their brothers. Uh, that you know, the cast might hate me. So Alan's opening the door the way he did was really very generous of him and very impactful to me. And then when I went on the set, the first guy who walked up to me and said hello was Gary Berghoff, the fellow who I'd seen in that scene, stuck out his hand and said, welcome aboard. And and then Loretta and Bill and Jamie and Larry. I mean, it was just, it was just wonderful. And and the point I wanted to get to was the first day, which was the same thing we did uh, every show, we we would sit around a table and read the script aloud. And for the writers to hear it, to have a way to think of feel whether a certain joke works or if there's something needs to be punched up or whatever. Anyway, so you start, Gene Reynolds, who was the director, said page one, and we read through the thing. And there were some laughs, and at the end, people applauded and welcome Mike and all that stuff. And then Gene said, okay, page one. And I looked at him, I, you know, we had just done that. And he said, oh, Mike, he said, here's where we go through page by page to see if you have any questions, any suggestions, any ideas. We just want to hear from you about. And I thought, honest to God, I think I've, I think I've died and gone to heaven. Now, I had done two years on a soap and two television series, and nobody had ever asked me uh, although I'd offered some thoughts at times, but nobody ever said, we want you to give us your take on the script. And I heard people, I heard people say, I think this joke could work better if Bill did it, or how about if we tried this? It was, it was really, it became what I finally understood to be a, a creative community. It was people working together to try to make the show as, as, as good as it could possibly be. And it never stopped. I was there for eight years, and it were eight of the happiest years of my life in terms of my career. My God, it was, it was, and remains the finest experience I've ever. I've, I've done some. I've done some really good things before and since, but nothing will ever reach that. That uh, that was the epitome. I guess is the word of of what I wanted to be part of in this business. That's so lovely. And I, I really enjoy hearing that it was such a collaborative experience as well. I think that's important for Absolutely. First of all that Alan Alda understood what it means to be a leader and, yep. and brought you to dinner. And because that, that example shines throughout the entire project. Absolutely. For him to have a grasp of that. And then for the, for the directors and such to know that it is a group effort, that it is so much. I mean, that's what creation is. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, there, there are so many times that that was laid out for me. Uh, a couple of times working on scripts. Um, there was one, I mean, you know, they worked hard, worked hard. And... I just think of one in particular that there was a, a scene that they took out of uh, out of uh, research they had done. They'd gone to Korea and they'd um, reached out to people who'd been in the MASH, doctors, nurses, and patients, 
And so they used a lot of the things they'd found in this research for as sort of things in the show, either plots or ideas or moments. There was one where we sat down and read this script about a bunch of Hawkeye and, and, and BJ were um, really upset that there a lot of kids, young kids, um, soldiers were coming in wounded because this hot shot officer kept shoving them, pushing them up this hill. It was a, just a terrible bloodshed, bloody battlefield. And we just thought, God damn it, you know, something, something's wrong here. And then the officer showed up to say to his guys, come on, guys, you got to get back in it. And we were going to fix everything. And we'll, I need you. I need you. And we came up with this uh, uh, scheme to um, buddy up with him, go take him into the swamp, get him drunk on our uh, the stuff we <laughs> fermented in the still, and uh, tell him he give him a Mickey, tell him he had a was having appendicitis, and give him take it, put him on the table, and take him take his appendix out. Uh, and take him off the line for a while in the hopes that that would take some, save some kids' lives. So we read through the script, and at the end of it, everybody applauded, and we went through the one page one by one. And we got to that point, and I said, um, yeah, I've got a problem here. And they said, what's that? I said, BJ wouldn't do that. And they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, cutting into it, Cutting into a healthy human body is not something that B.J. Honeycutt would do. And they said, well, we got it out of the research. I said, I'm not saying it didn't happen. <laughs> I'm not saying these guys over there made that choice. I'm saying that the, the fellow that you and I are building, are creating in this series, would not do that. And Alan piped up. He said, Hawkeye would. I said, I get it. I don't have any problem with that. I'm just telling you that BJ wouldn't. And we we must have talked for half an hour. And finally, Bert uh, Metcalf said, God, he said, we got a better show here than we have on the page. So we did that and we got him drunk. And then Alan said, let's get him into the OR. And BJ said, you're not really going to do that. And he said, God damn right I am. And BJ said, no, 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 man, you can't. And he did. And he came back in after the surgery and he said, I said, how was it? And he said it was ripe and healthy and looked perfectly fine to me. And talking about the appendix. And then they put in the sound of helicopters and wounded were coming in. And we looked at each other and it didn't need to be said. It was just that what you did didn't stop anything. Yeah. So, but it, the, the the part about it that stays with me is that they heard me. You know, they heard mm -hmm. what I was saying about this character and what he meant to me, and I thought to everybody else, and um, and they honored it. So that's that's kind of kind of an uh, an example, I think of. I appreciate too that they brought that character to life as a, a type of moral compass throughout the series and did not ignore the fact that it didn't mean that you were infallible. That's right. 
But I think that's so important. No, in fact, absolutely. Yeah. We well, we did another scene one time. Um uh it was in Ray uh Radars or Klinger's office. I forget. I guess it was maybe it was after Larry left and it was Klinger's office. Alan was on the phone. Oh no, no. Yeah. Um the actress Blythe Danner came in to play a uh, traveling nurse who'd come into our uh, compound on temporary duty. And she, it turned out, and he, uh, Hawkeye, had had an affair when they were in medical school together. And suddenly, here they were again, and I think she was married, and suddenly the affair blossomed and they were and he said to me uh, he said hawkeye to bj said uh, i um haven't been around lately i said yeah i've been i've missed you i've been crying into my pillow and he said uh, do you disapprove i said not my place to disapprove he said have you ever been unfaithful and I said, never. And he said, have you ever been tempted? I said, tempted's a different question. And he said, aha, you have. I said, no, I just said tempted's a different question. I didn't say. Anyway, so it was a joke. And it was a good scene. And we ended the scene. And we went out. And Larry Gelbart, who had written the scene, was there um, watching. And I said, Larry, that's a that was fun. That was great. I really enjoyed it. But for BJ to say, I've never been tempted, isn't human. I think the joke worked, but I think, I think it's important that we recognize that BJ is just as subject to temptation as everybody else. And a year later, Gene came to me and he said, you remember that conversation you had with Larry about being tempted? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, how, how would you feel if BJ fell off the fidelity wagon? And I said, whoa, that depends on how it's done. And he said, okay, let us, let us think about it. And they came back with a script where um, and one of the nurses had gotten a dear Jane from her beloved, I guess. And Kelly, I guess, came to me and said, nurse, whatever, is is really having a rough time. Would you be willing to go talk to her? And I said, sure. And I went in and we talked and how tough it is. And she said, it's just, you know, it hurts so much and you're away from the one you love. And, and she walked toward me and we embraced and then suddenly we were kissing and then fade out. So who knows <laughs> what happened thereafter, but one can assume. And the rest of the show was about Hawkeye saying, what are you doing? I'm writing Peg. About what? About what I did. No, you're not. <laughs> he said, you are not going to write that. We had a fight. It was, it was fabulous. And uh, he he finally made the point. He said, 
you're going to visit that kind of pain on her when she can do nothing about it. Tell her when you get home, but not now. I think I, that's the one where I got drunk and I punched Hawkeye, and it was a whole, the whole big deal. God, was, <laughs> Such a great cool. show! Oh, yeah. Such a great yeah. show! So many. It's look for those who are listening. If you've never experienced that show, I cannot recommend it enough. It's it's brilliantly acted, brilliantly written, brilliantly directed. Yeah, y'all, you made choices that were so extraordinary that hadn't even like the the perspective from the patient the person being operated on that episode yeah yeah that was incredible wonderful things really the point of view that was called yeah yeah and and i came in one day in my second year on the show and i said to bert i've got an idea for an episode he said yeah what is it and i ran it by him and he said that's terrific why don't you go write it and I said, whoa. Uh, and I had done some writing, but I not of the le level. He said, don't worry about it. We've got a group of you know writers here. We go into, we you write it down. We go into the room. We talk about it. But it was that creative community. It was like, whatever you want to do, you know, we want everything you'll give us. It was it was just amazing, really amazing to be part of that. When you left the show, when when it finished, yeah, what an epic ending! Uh, yes, it was. I've, I'm sure you've been asked this a gajillion times, but I understand that people who are on sets, especially for a long time, that they take memorabilia with them. When there was there a part of the set that you took with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have it in my office. I don't think it's here anymore. I have it. I have it down in my in my office the sign that that was on this on the swamp outside the swamp saying um san francisco which was shorthand for mill valley where new jay was from yeah. so yeah no that was wonderful that and i've got my boots and you know i just read that alan donated his boots and his dog tags uh to an auction for a college that he supports and he made a, just a ton of money, which is just great. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing all that. That's really. It's... Oh, yeah. You're welcome. Thank you. It's, um, you know, I don't know if you just wanted to talk about MASH, but uh, I, I, as you can tell, I'm always happy to do that. Yeah. No, I want to talk about everything. I mean, if you'll, if you, if you have time, I'd, I'd like to know from there. I, I think it sounds like, especially given that environment, <laughs> It had such a an impact, obviously here at home, but globally. And it sounds like you started to see the world. I mean, you were already a marine, so you saw the world. But where did where did that part of you start to really begin to develop this understanding that you have a huge humanitarian aspect of who you are? Because not everybody has that. I understand that. Yeah. It, it didn't happen by accident. None of these things happened by accident. But I got married um, shortly after I got home, uh, four years, I guess, after I got home from being a Marine. Um, and the marriage lasted for about three years, and then it fell apart. And I was um, devastated, just leveled. 
and uh, psychologically, I, I, I was just a wreck. And a friend of mine said uh, he, was, he was part of this organization. It was called. They called it the House. It was actually called the Manhattan Project. Interestingly enough. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and it was run by a group of uh, former uh, reforming, reformed drug addicts and people out of prisons and people out of mental institutions, the whole thing, you know, full deal, full on therapy. And he said, uh, you, you need to go to the, to the house. And he set up a meeting for me with the two guys. One was a psychological social worker and the other was a former addict, was one of the heads of the place. And he said, um, you, you need to tell them you want to be part of it and you're going to have to stand up and make a commitment. And I said, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, but okay. So I went and I sat and I talked to these guys and they kept, they kept saying, um, so what, what do you want? And I, I said, I want my wife back, and I want, I wanted this, and I want. And they said, what we've discovered is that people who come to us from other drugs or out of prison or out of out of off the streets, whatever, want the same three things: they want love, they want attention, and they want respect. What do you want? I want my wife, and I want my this, and I want to have that. Right. We understand that. But what we've found is that, <laughs> and I, I think back over this now, I was so uh, into my own grief. We They probably did that five times. What we understand, what we've found is that all anybody who is in pain from whatever wants is to be loved, to have attention paid, and to have respect. What do you want? And I thought, that's what they want me to say. I said, okay, I want, I want to be loved. I want to have attention paid. I want to be respected. And I started to weep. God, I was just blowing tears. And before I could finish the sentence, the two of them had leapt up and were holding me. First time in my life I'd ever been held by a man. And this was two men. And I just wept until I was dry. And they said, okay, the first meeting is Tuesday at uh, such and such. We expect you to show up. And I said, I'll be there. And I spent a year there um, with junkies and whores and drug addicts of all type and gay people who couldn't deal with their gayness and um, lost people, people out of mental hospitals. Just it was it was quite extraordinary, really quite extraordinary. And I remember one early we did a lot of group therapy with tough, tough, hard people, some of them. This guy said something, and I I said something back to him. 
little stronger than usual. And he said, who the fuck are you? And I said, I'm Mike. And he said, what the fuck is a Mike? And I thought, whoa. <laughs> An excellent question. Whoa, yeah. <laughs> whoa that's something. <laughs> I ought to think about that for a while. Oh, man. So that the, over time, I became the, the, the new people that came in, they called stupid, part of the stupid group, too stupid to know what they wanted. And if you graduated from the stupid group, uh, you became responsible. And after I I challenged Ernie at something, and that made me responsible, and I moved into the responsible group. And that meant I went out to prisons with them when we offered this program to people who were going to get out of prison and say, or jail, whatever, and say, look, it's not going to do you any good to go back to the same situation that put you here. We offer this program. Give it some thought. And without touching the pain that brought them there. Absolutely. So I, I was there working with these folks and working with myself and, you know, kind of getting it together. And I've never forgotten it. Um, and going into prisons really opened a door for me. I, I saw how dehumanizing it is. And I saw how people were became integers. They became numbers. They became less than human. And I had always thought the death penalty made no sense, but I thought at the top of this lousy system, after it dehumanizes all these people, it then kills them. That's that's the worst. I mean, that's the most chicken shit and the worst kind of societal decision I can imagine. This was well, this was before Mash. So, so I, I, I was, I was doing, you know, the stuff I was doing. I was trying to build a career, and, and then Mash happened, and uh, I, oh, oh, I got involved in. There was a black revolution, there was a gay revolution, there was a women's revolution, and I got involved in all of them because we were doing that stuff at the house, and it was pointing out how. Uh, how harmful the way society operated was to so many of its members. Mm -hmm. um, so I got, you know, I went down to Operation Bootstrap downtown after the LA riots, and I went to God, any number of places and got involved in, in in stuff. And then, so when Mash happened, I was I was doing things, but suddenly I was the star of one of the premier shows on television and press was interested in what I was doing and why I was doing it. Uh, so people contacted me. Um, one was a group um, that uh, works with uh, refugees around the, around the world. And I became, I got associated with them and worked with them and traveled to Southeast Asia and did a lot of stuff with them and then became involved uh, as their spokesperson. But one of the things that 
has been ongoing, and that is as well. But one of the things that's been ongoing is um, a minister called me on the set. I don't know how he got the number, but he did. And he said, uh, I understand you're against the death penalty. And I had signed a petition or something saying, yes, I'm against the death penalty. I said, yeah, I don't, I don't know what I can do about it, but I'm against it. And he said, I think I'd like to come out and talk to you. And I said, okay. His name is Joe Engel. He's um, the head of, was then the head of the Southern Coalition on Jails and Prisons in uh, Nashville. And um, he talked, he said, we in 76 that there was a decision made by the Supreme Court that reopened the death chambers. 72, they were stopped nationwide, and then it was reopened in 76. And uh, there were a couple of executions in the late 70s, um, but we, we really hadn't gotten going in the execution business. Hmm. So he said, uh, we're going to have a bloodbath in this country, and I need somebody who can get publicity, get press to help me do my work. And I said, uh, okay. And he invited me down to Nashville, and he took me to my first death row, which was um, not something I'll ever forget. And I've been in a lot of death rows since then, but... You know, when you're in a newbie to it, being in a place with these men in cages, and they were all men, and they were almost all black or brown, and they were, some of them were really excited to see me, and some of them were angry at me for being there. And some of them were just moved enough by our presence, mine and Joe's, to uh, to want to talk. And we talked. I've still got a, a guy had gave me a crucifix he made out of matchsticks. That's on my wall down there, too. Hmm. And so I, I started working with Joe uh, with the Southern Coalition. And at that time, I was also working with... Um, organization trying to change the U.S. policy in Central America, the refugee aid organization that I was working with uh, asked me if I would take a load of, uh, fly to Honduras and take a load of medical supplies to the camps where their people were working. So I did that and um, brought along a couple people uh, you know, just one, it's in this life, these things all th sort of thread into each other and make a tapestry of some kind. The death penalty work is uh, is something that I've continued as it as has been the human rights in general. I, I, I was actually one of the founders of Human Rights Watch in California and traveled to various parts of the world in support of human rights uh, understandings and human rights um, covenants. And the UN asked me, uh, along with some others, to go to Somalia when uh, 1992, I guess it was, when uh, the Marines were sent into Somalia and the country was 
in chaos and people were dying by the bushels. And then they asked again if I'd go to, uh, and on that, on that trip, uh, we also went to um, Bosnia. Mm. You know, terrible war going on there, the Serbs against the Bosnian Muslims. Genocide. And, and then, speaking of genocide, asked me to go to Rwanda uh, after the slaughter there. So this stuff, you know, they all leave marks. I was just going to ask, how does one firstly prepare oneself to go into those experiences? And how how do you not carry it with you to the point where it dulls you to the world now? Oh, I don't think it dulls you. I think it um, heightens your awareness of everything around you. Not everybody. And what I mean by that is that I think for some to experience the cruelty that we can inflict upon each other, some some folks, their their response to that would be, I can't look at it. I can't think of it anymore. I'm going to put my head in the sand. Whereas other people, I think, go toward it, mm-hmm. go toward it to embrace the those that are left in the aftermath and to try and figure out how to keep it from happening again, which... <laughs> I mean, good luck with that, right? Human beings have this unfortunate, innate tendency for cruelty that I I will never, even when we talk about the, I'm sort of going amok here, but even talking about the death penalty, and I think the irony of somebody being walked in to be strapped in, let's say, lethal injection to, to meet their doom and on the other side of the wall is the person pushing that button. So while removing a person that you feel is unworthy of living life anymore because they took someone's life, you're creating a murderer at the same time. Right. There's yeah. no, there's literally no sense to that whatsoever. I couldn't agree more. No sense to it. And it is terribly destructive, terribly destructive of everybody involved in the process. And I, 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 speak a lot on the subject so i and i cite um dr um rush one of the signers of the declaration of independence who was anti-slavery and uh, a medical doctor um and he opened something called the pennsylvania prison project and he was avowedly anti-capital punishment and he said that Killing another human being brutalizes everyone associated with the process. And I think that's what that's what's happening to our society. We are continuing to re-brutalize ourselves and worsen ourselves as a result. So, you know, it's a, trying to find that little moment of openness in somebody that says, you don't have to be afraid. Or you can be afraid if you choose, but understand that your fear is what's keeping you from accepting the reality of the good around you. And, you know, join us. We've got ways in which we can stop this. this. And then there's those who are indifferent to it all, right? Which is yeah. is even more terrifying to be indifferent to something like that. I agree. I agree. It's the antagonists that are, that are easiest to deal with. The, the, those who are indifferent are the hardest to get through to. Why do you think it is, you can only speak for yourself, we can 
try and understand why other people think the way they do, but why do you think it is that the idea of humanity and being humane has, maybe it always has been, I haven't been around forever or anything, but that, that it's been politicized so much. Uh, uh, politicized is a good word. Um, you, factional factionalism you know you 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 find yourself um or you one tends to find oneself allying with people who see things sort of in a manner that's less painful than the ones that see things in a manner that's more painful and instead of just you know <laughs> dealing with it on a pain scale instead of opening up and just sort of allowing yourself to be present and recognize I I, I I grow tired of saying that all human beings want the same thing love attention and respect and without them people turn into human pretzels trying to get some sort of vestige of what those real things might offer you know stick needles in your arms or attack others or do whatever you will just understanding that you're lovable that you deserve to be loved that you deserve to be uh respected and to and that you deserve to have attention paid god what a what an extraordinary understanding that's if I don't have that feeling in myself, it's going to be really easy to turn my back on another. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are you still figuring out who the fuck a mic is? <laughs> it becomes more open, more, more uh, clear to me regularly, but it's, yeah, I'm still in the process. As a person who was raised Catholic, do you, do you believe, I'm not going to ask you what your faith is, because I think that's such a nebulous question, but what, do you believe in a higher power or higher consciousness to it all? Yeah, what, whatever it is, I think there's something sort of higher, whether it be the acknowledgement of your own power, whether it be the acknowledgement of something else that's out there that can steer you in the right direction. I don't know. What I know is it's worth considering and working toward if not figuring it out you know maybe maybe figuring it out is too big a trip but it's worth toward acting as if mm. acting. I like that. yeah can you let people know the best way to find you your organizations where how can they dig in sure death penalty focus is at um deathpenalty.org that'll that'll get you right to us uh concern america is concernamerica.org um human rights watch everybody knows i think it's uh, human rights watch is based in uh, based in new york but operates worldwide and I, I was lucky enough to be part of the foundation of it here on the west coast um because of the work I had been doing and that we were doing, uh, you know, but there's, it's not just our organizations. There are a lot of good organizations out there. Amnesty International. I keep a really 
solid links page on heyhumanpodcast.com with things that we've talked about and how to find them. And I know you've written books and, mm. and so all that information I'll compile. So it's easy for people to find. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much for caring enough to ask for it. That's, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure what uh, Bob had in mind when he recommended me, but I thought this sounds interesting. So sure. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening, everybody. You've been very generous with your time and with your your very, very good questions and your interest. Your interest is really appreciated. Thank you. And look, I, I have an idea of what the world is capable of. I'd like to see all of us get there. It'd <laughs> be great. And, in my lifetime, who knows? I, I don't know, but I know that it's it does start with exactly that attention, love, and Respect. space of listening too. I mean, I think we're so busy talking over each other. Yeah. And I and I know that that cacophony is is placed so that we don't ever have to get so quiet that we hear ourselves think. Mm. Mm. You know, and it's my goal to help facilitate conversations where people might listen and and think, oh, oh, maybe maybe I can think about that just a little tiny bit and just open that window just a little bit, you know. <laughs> Good for you for doing this. This is this is this is important work. Yeah, I feel like it is wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's really been an honor and a delight to talk to you. And thank you for just being on the planet and making it better. <laughs> Well, it's a thrill for me. Thank you very much. You uh, you give me hope. <laughs> Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.